The Startup Executive is a podcast designed to help you become a well-rounded startup executive. The best executives have a good understanding of all aspects of the business. Join us each week to learn from a new go-to-market leader on what is important in their department and what it takes to become an effective startup executive. Joining us today is Michael Burton, an entrepreneur with a passion for building and scaling professional services businesses. He has over two decades of experience in the industry and has held recent leadership positions at Exact Target, Salesforce, and Lev. In 2016, Michael joined Lev and quickly grew the company into the top global Salesforce consultancy for marketers. In less than four years, he took the company to a high eight-figure enterprise valuation through a successful acquisition by global strategic integrator Cognizant. Michael is now the CEO and co-founder of Stitch, a Braze consulting partner. Stitch is rapidly growing and is helping brands of all sizes engage their customers through Braze. Join us as we explore the get things done mentality, managing resistance to change, how to exit with a high multiple, and so much more. This guy is king at casually spitting out golden nugget phrases that stick for a lifetime. This is the Startup Executive Podcast. Thanks for coming on, Michael. Welcome to the Startup Executive. Yeah, thank you. I'm looking forward to it. I've been following your your career lately, so I'm excited to, to kind of catch up. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. And I uh, I heard about you. I've known about you for years, and, and kind of it's been cool to kind of get to know you better over over the years. Uh, I'm excited to de- dive deeper into some of the stuff that we haven't uh, talked about yet. Um, but for those people who are just tuning in, could you just go ahead and give us a little bit of background? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I'm currently the CEO of Stitch, but that's just the work life. My family life is really kind of who I am. So I'm uh, based here in Indianapolis, married to my wife, Jenny. We've got uh, two young boys. One is almost eight and another one's two. So we're living like a crazy life right now. But uh, (laughs) I've been in the indie tech community for a couple of decades now. Um, Graduated from IU after starting off at Purdue and realizing I had made a mistake. Sorry, Boilermakers, <laughs> but I'm a Hoosier at heart. And, uh, and I've kind of been in the space in a lot of different companies from financial services to exact target, Salesforce, uh, Lev, and then ultimately where I am right now at Stitch. Now, I'm not actually from Indiana. So every time there's an IU Purdue rivalry joke, it really makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you're a, a Hoosier, though. I am. I mean, ultimately, where's my degree? My degree is IU. Uh, and that's what I've always been known as a Hoosier. So and just, you know, sometimes like it's like a startup and that's not one just straight path. So you kind of journey. I found my fit being a Hoosier. <laughs> well, perfect. Can you tell us a little bit after your Hoosier days, you worked in professional services at the start. Did you know that's kind of where you, you wanted to go, what you wanted to do or what took you there? I, it, it, it didn't play out that way. Like I didn't have this idea that I was going to be in professional services I, I had started off, like, like I, I joke a little about Purdue, but it's a great school. I started off at a biophysics major, had no idea what wow. that was going to mean. And really, <laughs> it means like just two things, like you're doing research or you're a professor. And ultimately, that just didn't sound all that appealing to me. And I found my way into economics and then a little bit into computer science. And so when I came out, I really didn't know. I was just about where do I find a company that's uh, I think is a good fit for me culturally. And I'd been interviewing a lot of the big consulting companies, uh, had a couple of offers, but decided to do this small company in Carmel, Indiana called Baker Hill. 
And I don't, I think my title, initial title was consultant. I don't think anyone knew what that really meant, nor did I. <laughs> and so I just, I kind of landed in it. And I learned a lot along the way about being customer facing, but it definitely was not a part of my thinking like, okay, I'm going to go in professional services. Like this was something I just kind of just creeped into and it actually worked out really well. Yeah. If consulting was more of, you know, a general given name, how would you describe what your first job actually was? Uh, I think a mix of project management and then more like technical consulting. So we were doing, like I was helping banks and credit unions uh, implement Baker Hill technology. And at that time, kind of dating myself, it was all like client server. So like installing disks. And then it ultimately kind of moved into more cloud-based um, applications over my over my tenure. But it was a lot of like I think heavy project management, and then you really had to understand the technical aspect. And I think the last thing is understanding the business side of it. Like what, why, why is this important? Why is this important to this credit analyst in the Bay Area or I'm somewhere in random Pennsylvania talking about loan operations? So it definitely required me to be pretty diverse, but that's kind of like, if I had to think about like the core things I was doing, that's what it would look like. Yeah. Let's say, so you're on the startup executive podcast. The tagline is for current and future startup executives. So let's say there is someone who is doing project management type tasks. Sometimes it can be tactical. Sometimes it's a little more big picture, but what did you take from your project management plus experience um, that helped you obviously have a successful career, become a CEO, et cetera? I think three things jump out about my time at Baker Hill. I think the first thing is I understood how to be, because you're a project manager, you're a leader. And you're, you're a lot of times you're leading without direct influence. Like you're, you're leading a mm-hmm. customer. You're leading it. Like that's hard to go do. And I learned how to change my style based off that other person. Like it was me. It's really about meeting that person where they were. It wasn't about my style. So I learned that pretty early on. I think the second thing I learned is that most people do not prepare. And then if I went into every single meeting, every single onsite and did the ultimate preparation that I felt confident that I could stand out by doing that prep work. I think that's the second thing. And the third thing I learned is that every new project I had this mantra was going to be my best project. And so every single time I was saying, what did I learn about the last thing I just did and how do I make that better? And those three things have carried forward across my entire career that I learned really early on that um, maybe I was just a consultant and then was a project manager, but those things were foundational to who, who I am today. Yeah, we've had a few people on the podcast and I've just heard from various speakers. Um, one said, be obsessive about tracking. And I'm just curious, this is a little bit of an offshoot, but did you have a particular way that you did track those successes or you know the things you kind of wanted to iterate on? Or did you just keep it in your brain? <laughs> no, I, I write down everything. So I've, I've been yeah. a long time user of, of Evernote when we think of actual solutions and then Todoist. But uh, for many years, I've been using the strategy GTD, getting things done, which was all about like recording everything I'm doing, focusing on like, getting better and just prioritizing the stuff that was most important and relevant. And so I, I was constantly tracking things down and I still do. And I still like, there's so much going on. I've got to continue to figure out 
what was t- what was talked about and everyone will say you, you know you remember so many things and i'm like no i don't i just happen to write <laughs> them down and know where to go look yeah. for it it's pretty it's pretty simple <laughs> one of uh one of your old coworkers, uh they told me they were you were one of the most like uh organized people that they've ever met so i'm very interested to see this this note catalog uh one one of the things that I thought was interesting about like your time at Baker Tilly was that you stayed for eight years, which is like pretty substantial in terms of, uh, you know, at least when you think about like modern day careers, what about it, you know, made you stay for eight years when it was still like a relatively small company? I, some of it was my, admittedly my parents' influence. So my, my mom was a teacher for many, many years. My dad was at Eli Lilly or some derivative of Eli Lilly his entire career, actually until the day he passed away. And so like growing up in that world, you didn't see a lot of movement. And so yeah. it was it was always kind of in the back of my mind is like, all right, that's kind of how, what I've known. So I think that that admittedly is one part of it. It's part of how, like, how I was raised and how I saw my parents and, and uh, other people, other family members in my life who are a lot of teachers. And then the second thing is I really enjoyed my time at Baker Hill and I learned a lot. I think Mark Hill is still one of my mentors who, who um, hired me out of IU along with a couple of other people who I still can, I still keep in touch with a couple of decades later. And I think that was um, the the other big piece of it is kind of that, so that family influence. And I really didn't just enjoy my time at Baker Hill. We were ultimately acquired by Experian. And being a part of a larger organization for me was kind of a reality check that that's not really what I want to go and be into long term. And was there like some point along the way, maybe it was when you were acquired, but was there ever like this ambition to be like a a CEO for one or just any sort of like C-suite or what were you kind of thinking in those first couple of years out of college, like early in your career? Was it like, I haven't planned that far? Was it like, I want to be a CEO and here are the steps to get there? Uh, talk about that a little bit. I, I never had, I never really had it in my mind that I was going to be a CEO. And I think that's not, it's not because I wasn't necessarily driven to do that. Like I always wanted to be someone that was kind of leading the charge. I wanted to be making decisions. I admittedly, it was probably difficult to manage as that kind of person. Um, <laughs> I think that the, the part of me that, I think I had, to, I had this misperception. I talk about this a lot. I had this misperception of what a CEO is. And I really tried to help kind of break down that barrier because people think of a CEO in a very certain light, like extrovert, sales-driven, you know, just just bigger than life kind of viewpoint of some CEOs that are out there. And that's that's just, I mean, that's not reality. You know, that's a CEO can be all different types of flavors. So it took me some time to understand like what can, like what does a CEO look like? Um, because there's no one profile. And then I think I ultimately just kind of found my way into it. I'm, I'm, I, I don't have any gr- regrets. Like I get that sometimes, like, hey, do you regret being a, not being a, being a CEO earlier in your career? I'm like, no, no, I, I had a great career. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> and given kind of like the continuance of that career, it seemed like everything was like professional services. Is I'm correct that pretty much your entire career has been professional services? Or were there any offshoots that I missed? I, I did a small, I did a startup called Course Load. It was kind of in the ed tech space. Okay. That's um, a, a little mix of professional services, but not all in professional services. So if you take okay. out that component, uh, professional services have been in my entire career. And most of it had been in tech services inside of tech companies. 
And it wasn't until Lev a few years ago where I was truly like a services business outside of a tech company. Gotcha. And uh, the reason I ask, obviously kind of running a, a small professional services company as well, one of the more interesting or hard parts maybe is that it's not like software. It's not like you build the product once and then you just sell, sell, sell. Uh, every new person is kind of like there's the training, there's the development, there's the kind of just unpredictable nature of that person overall. So how have you kind of found leading professional services teams you know, across like tech services and actually full on professional services companies? How do you get people on the same page, uh, like marching towards, you know, the same company outcomes? Like what has worked for you? So I, I mean, I, I kind of in this case have the benefit of not knowing <laughs> what the other side of it really looks like, right? To me, like this is just, this is normal. And what we do is being like a tech adjacent services, like working as a channel partner feels normal. So I, I, when I think about this, it's, I think it's more about trying to rally a team behind like, what, what are you, what, what do you stand for? I think some of it's about the culture. So to draw the right people into it, to kind of build out that, you know, that camaraderie between the group is really important in professional services business. And I think this equally, the second part is like, well, what's, what's different? Like, why, why is this business special? Like, why is Stitch special? And when you attract really talented people who believe in this mission of whatever you want to go be to be special, then that gives someone, a, gives people a rallying point. Now, everyone is wired differently. Come back to one of the things I learned early at uh, Baker Hill. So some of it's, it's people are very competitive. You've got to appeal to that competitive nature. But there, there's this general sense of like, how do we want to be different? So prior to my time at Stitch at a company called Lev, it was like, I, I wanted us to be the underdog and I wanted us to be you know, the most influential Salesforce um, focus, marketing focused Salesforce consultancy in the world. And people kind of really rallied around that. So I think those are two big things that kind of pulling together the really great talent and then going after that one mission. And then you kind of underlock, you put all the numbers, the metrics underneath that. You know, as a team now, even at Stitch, we people know the metrics. You know, how we're doing on pipeline, how we're doing on bookings and revenue and gross margin. We're transparent about all that. And that, I think that makes everyone understand like each person is con- is contributing to the success of the business. From like the delivery side of, of that kind of uh, talking a little bit about like training and, and delivery, how would you handle that for your professional services companies? Like, would you just only hire people who kind of already knew everything or are you hiring people with the intention of hey you know you're going to learn some of our playbooks and best practices and you're going to help uh kind of roll it out across our, our future clients uh so it's 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 for sure it's a mix it ha- it has to be to be to build a sustainable mm-hmm. services business it can't just be the most senior most experienced people in the world um and so you've got to be able to teach people so yes like creating different programs at Lev, we had something called Next Lev. We took a lot of people that were new college graduates and would go through that. We took people that were career changers. Maybe they had a teaching background and they've never done anything like this, consulting and or being on marketing technology. And at Stitch, we haven't created, I don't think we've branded it yet, but we're going to create something that's going to be very similar. We've already started doing that with several new college graduates. But is um, in some spaces, like the space that Stitch plays in now with Braze, it's not like that talent just, it's not as abundant. And so you have mm-hmm. to go teach people to go do this. 
So then it's really about just finding what are the most important characteristics of the people we want to bring into the business that we think we can teach. So we're looking for naturally curious people um, have that kind of have a background in wanting to understand like what is it like for a consumer working being alongside of one of these brands and so there's some other characteristics that we look at but we have to you know, we have to go in and, and invest in that in order for this to be successful long term we have to create the next generation of consultants i love it what do you tell the other people when they're unsure about investing in college grads for instance you know sometimes college grad will start a new job and they're there for a year two years why invest why spend that time and those resources I mean, there, there's a business side of it where, like, I, like, I don't, I don't know how you, you can't like not invest in that. Like, you have to, you have to go scale a business. You have to be able to create a mix of less experienced people and senior experienced people, um, even just from a like a cost model. Like, you just think about just kind of running the, the financials of a business. There's that whole reality that you must go do that to be really successful. And then the, the other part of me that kind of goes back to my days at, Bar- at Baker Hill, you know, before the War Fellowship Program existed here in, in Indiana, was like giving people a chance. And, you know, that always resonated with me. They'd never hired anyone that was a non-technical person uh, right, out of, right out of school. And at the time, I didn't fully understand why that was important to them. And over time, I, I did because there's a lot they had to go and invest in me. And so for me, it's about giving back, uh, just like I had the opportunity. The other reality is I think like my hit rate on people that are coming right out of school is at least 95% plus. And, oh, wow. um, I mean, I just have had tremendous success in, in believing in new college hires. And I think the other thing I would, I always tell people is like, I, once they start your company, I don't, they're not, they're not a new college person. They're not a new college hire. They're not nor fellow. They're not whatever. They're not any of that. They have, I have the same expectations um, of that person starting the business as I do someone that's got 20 years of experience. And I think just accepting that, that hey, these, these people are, are great and you have to give them the opportunity to be successful are all the, all the reasons from financial to giving back to saying, hey, that these people are, are very talented and challenge them are all the things I tell people now. Yeah. Um, you say it as if it's so just like, of course, and obvious and natural. But um, I just want to point it out because um, you've never been my boss or anything, but I've just heard great things about your leadership and how you invest in people. So, yeah, sure. Maybe it makes sense for the cost structure. But if you do it really well, you can have a 95 percent success rate, you know, and then have lifelong colleagues. So, yeah, it's it's been I mean, for me, it's it's been one of the most rewarding things in my whole career is seeing people who like I think about this uh, one woman we hired, she was a music major out of DePaul years ago. And then I see what she's doing now. Like she, you know, she came into a business doing technical consulting and then she went out to do great things. And I think it's, it's just so cool to see those stories repeated again and again in my career. Uh, that's, that's just awesome personally. So cool to see. It definitely does take like a certain type of leader, though. Like, I wouldn't imagine that everyone would just be able to hire college graduates and be like, okay, cool. Well, they're nice and cheap, but now what? You know, <laughs> it definitely takes like the, you know, that next lev- level program or, or some like just commitment internally to invest in those people before they're actually kind of like, you know, pulling their weight, I guess, from a professional services aspect. It, it makes they, me go ahead. No, and but they, they, 
I think when you go in the expectation, like they're no different than anyone else, because they're not. Yeah. Um, they're equally as intelligent. Maybe they don't have the years of experience in seeing how A, B, and C happen. In some cases, that's good, mm-hmm. right? They come out, they're seeing it from a whole different viewpoint. But it's, it's, it, it is surprising how quickly, when I think about how quickly people can get up to speed. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about there's, there's this one moment, another person, another DePaul, randomly we've had a lot of luck with liberal <laughs> arts, small liberal arts school here in, in Indiana, be successful, where no technical became incredibly technical, moved to London, hired her sister. I just, we just hired her sister a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, we need more of that talent pool. That's what we're going to go after. <laughs> Where do we find more of those people? More siblings, more siblings. That's right. Exactly. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to Stitch. Stitch is very young or relatively young still. And I think it's funny that, of course, you're doing a similar program with this. But before we get to Stitch, I want to jump to Lev. Before we jump to Lev, are there any other just key learnings um, influential things that, you know, have changed how you do your job now that you've taken from your first eight years of your career? Uh, I, I think the other, just the other main thing that I kind of recall is that I think one of the drivers to my early success in my career was being right in front of customers. And, you know, I, I got challenged very early on, like, hey, Michael, go and get in front of customers. And it's not good enough to be on a Zoom call. Uh, or on a phone call, like go be in person. And there were times really early in my career that I, I pushed back on that. I'm like, come on, like, I don't want to go travel. Like I want to be, I want to be close to home. I want to be close to my friends. And one of my mentors named Jeff really pushed me and said, he was like, I promise you when you're in front of your customers, you will develop 10 X time. And he's right. I still, still tell people that today because it's just very different when you're on, like you're truly, there's a spotlight on you in front of a customer and it forces you to prepare way more than you ever would. And while it's always great to say, hey, I don't know, let me get back to you. It's even better to say, here's the answer or here's my perspective is even better. And I can't tell you like how much that traveling in my early, my early career was so important. And I tell people that, that are new, new in their career, the faster you can get in front of a customer in person, the better. I like that. And I think for my, for myself, I don't have the opportunity to get in front of customers. However, either one, I can find the opportunity or number two, I can go back to something that you said at the beginning um, and fiercely prepare right? Like go in absolutely ready, having all your ducks in a row to then make it the best meeting or the best project that you've done. So um, take your pick. You can do either one and and probably find success. So, all right. Can you talk a little bit about how you got involved with Lev? Yeah. So my, my background on Lev was really focused on, I I got connected with a company here in Indianapolis called Exact Target. And so doing services again, internally, and then ultimately, um, yeah, shortly after Salesforce acquired Exact Target, but I was remember I was doing internal services work, so working inside, uh, working for customers, but inside of those organizations, the Exact Target model. We'll go through the whole history, but they they didn't they had while they had a partner ecosystem, it wasn't very robust. So there are a lot of internal services, which was my role was internal services. And even if you look at Exact Target as they're a publicly traded company all the way until they were acquired, I think the last quarter that they were public before they were acquired, about 20% of the revenue was from internal services. And it was growing quarter over quarter. 
Salesforce steps in and their model is more partner first. So partners help them co-sell, they deliver, they grow a customer, they help re- reduce churn. And even if, I don't know what the numbers were when we were, when ExactTarget was acquired, but right now Salesforce, even with a huge partner ecosystem, about 7% of their revenue comes from internal services. So the model was uh, less internal services, more consultants, partners that exist out there. And for me, it was like the first time where I kind of had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit kind of emerge in me. I'm like, I think doing this on my own could be doing it. You know, why, why am I doing it inside of this, this business? And I'm like, why not go out and go, go help build something? I, at the time, it wasn't building something from scratch or being the CEO. I just had this desire to take this, these same things that we were doing, but doing them uh, outside. And I thought that could create greater flexibility for myself and the people that would join. And, um, and so that's how I got to Lev. I started talking to people and saying, hey, why don't we do this outside? And most people said, no, no. Why, why, why would you want to go do that? Like, this is comfortable. Deals come our way. We get assigned to them and we work them. That's great. That's less stress. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, that's less stress, but it's not as fun. And so that's very different risk profiles, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's, that's what led me to take this idea about what it could be like to build like a marketing cloud consultancy and kind of make it world class started to emerge in my head because like, we already know how to go do this. So let's go, let's go do it outside. And a recruiter eventually got me connected to Lev. And that's that's kind of where that journey started. And, and talk about the progression within Love, because this was kind of like, I don't know if it's like your breakout moment, but this was when you became the CEO of a company for the first time. And uh, so just talk talk through that just a little bit. Like, what did you do uh, pre being chosen as the CEO? Then I have a question before you get into the actual CEO part. But just talk through kind of like what were you doing uh, pre CEO? So I, I came in, there's a couple of things that are going on. So I came in to build a marketing cloud practice. Uh, Levamentum, I'm going to call it Lev, Levamentum, was focused, um, while they had some Salesforce, they didn't, definitely did not have any Salesforce marketing cloud. They were primarily working on another tech, cha- tech partner called Sugar CRM, which I, had, I knew nothing about. And uh, it was small. So it was a, like a 20-person consultancy. And I thought, from my viewpoint, Hey, this could be interesting because there's already a footprint. You know, like there's already something there. I'm not thinking about creating a business entity or creating checking accounts. Like there's some kind of motion in place. And my thinking was, all right, I can use that as a foundation and that can help accelerate the growth of creating a Salesforce marketing cloud consultancy. So that was the thinking. And I can talk a little bit later about that's part of the reason why I'm doing Stitch, which is I actually prefer to start from nothing uh, versus <laughs> starting from a footprint. But that's, uh, I'm happy to get into that. But that's, that's really wh- how I came in to Lev, not being the CEO, and then realizing, hey, maybe not everything was ex- exactly there like I wanted it to. And we ultimately kind of pivoted the business to focus almost exclusively on Salesforce Marketing Cloud. And that's ultimately why I became the CEO. Can you clarify something for me? I'm trying to put pieces together in my head. So you said, okay, we can do this Salesforce thing outside of the actual company. So let me go do that. And then you found Lev, Lev, Lev momentum <laughs> that did so not, did I butcher that? Okay. No, no. That's why it's called, that's why we renamed it to Lev. But it was impossible to say. If that was your first decision as CEO, you nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> but 
I'm I'm confused because they they didn't have that already established. Like they didn't have a Salesforce entity in place. So why did you pick it? Like, did you know you would maybe pick it apart and create your own thing within that shell? I, I don't think I did not know that I would become the CEO. Like when I came in, I, I just had I did know that it had enough the bones that I could go and like like there's no thinking about payroll or benefits. Yeah. Like there's a lot of things. There's already some brand, although we knew we needed to change the brand. There was there were some things to start with, and so like that was to me at, at in the moment was I thought, oh, that's that's too consuming to think about that. I just want to go focus on creating the business, and and some of that's true. I mean, there, I can get hit it later. Like why did we go with the investor that we did high alpha that helps me not think about some of those things, but I came in and just had some bones, and I thought all right, it's good enough, then I can immediately focus with the small team I'm going to bring over on starting to drive new business directly from Salesforce Marketing Cloud AEs. So that's that's kind of how we got into that the, the, that mix. Can you talk about, can you give me like one or two wins? What did you do? How did you execute before becoming CEO that obviously helped you get to that point? You know, I, I always go, there was, there are these moments, I'm always convinced like there are these moments, like these true moments in time, there's like these significant inflection points, inflection points up, like they happen like, sometimes they're within seconds and sometimes they're like within an hour. And I remember very early on, maybe a month into this uh, new lab story, and I had lined up a, a very important meeting, like four or five people over on the Salesforce side that had influence with almost all the Salesforce marketing cloud AEs. And I'm thinking, boy, if we can nail this one, then we've got a real good shot of kind of opening up and building a story. And so that was a, I think it was a 45 minute meeting. And I would say I probably prepped at least for 20 hours on that. to like get <laughs> the story very lined up. Like you didn't want to memorize it. You wanted it to be natural. You wanted to be confident. And I think that was one of the earliest um, moments in the, my Lev tenure where it was like, all right, if we can, if we can really hit that, then we were going to be successful. And so like, that's why we invested so much time as myself. Actually, I think, yeah, myself and Bobby Tishy were, I think, were on that call uh, pretty early on. And, and it worked. You know, we got done with it. And like Bobby and I knew it went really well. And we had a chance now to, for that group to go and share our story. You know, with hundreds of marketing clients, and we expected that would eventually lead to more and more work coming our way, and it did. But I mean, like, talk about preparation for a, a very short meeting, and we, we, I mean, probably practiced it, I don't know, 50, 60 times to try to get it right. Wow. I love that. There is a, there's a concept, the Adam Grant concept, the return on luck idea. Like you have those moments that it could have gone either way, uh, but because you were super prepared, you actually captured that return on that lucky moment in a way that uh, you know could have could have led you to to becoming the CEO. Uh, I'm interested though. So the process of being chosen to replace the CEO of a company. Number one, like what happened to the original CEO, and then number two. Like, how did you get selected over the other people? What was that process like um, in, in terms of replacing a CEO of a, a company that's still kind of running? So the, the original CEO um, had hired the recruiter, the headhunter, that ultimately connected the two of us. So uh, his name was Doug. Doug was very much 
in the loop and bringing me into the business and understood the value of the strategy around marketing cloud. And he saw the same opportunity that I saw as far as you know, the reason why I left Salesforce to begin with. And I think in a fairly short order, once we saw where the business was headed, like with Salesforce marketing was driving the business, that was the growth, that was the success story. I mean, he, he knew as, as well as anyone, like, hey, this just made sense. Like it, there was like, before I was the CEO, it wasn't just like one day it was announced, like this had been planned for quite some time and it was kind of gotcha. operating in that model. So it wasn't about this decision, let's go look at a, a group of people, let's go evaluate. It just, it was gotcha. just evident by like, where's the growth of the business and where was I excelling? And I wanted, you know, at that point, we realized I could be a CEO and could be successful as a CEO. And so it was all very, it was all very natural, organic. And when you become the CEO, uh, obviously you'd been sort of maybe acting as pseudo CEO for some time or, or hand in hand at least. Um, but when you get elected to be the, the new CEO of a company, is it just, okay, Michael, what's your plan? Like, how are we, where do we go from here? And everyone just starts looking at you. Do you have to kind of like immediately lay that out? I guess I'm curious, like, what did those first six months look like after becoming a CEO? And yeah, how was that like? I mean, the, the easy part is we kind of had already defined the strategy, which was Salesforce marketing and our story was going to be the future of Lev, while Sugar CRM had been the, you know, Sugar CRM was the past. Uh, we ultimately ended up selling a part of the Sugar CRM business out of Lev and then focus exclusively on Salesforce. So the strategy was already in place. And, and by that time, a lot of the people that came into Lev were focused on Salesforce Marketing Cloud and were from my background or you know, my network or we'd hired them. And so that was fairly easy. I think the hardest part, which would be, and I, I would say this is, still, this is true for the Lev entity that exists today, is you're kind of taking over what was someone's baby. Well, yes, it's different. You know, I think that was the most challenging part with the first six months. Well, it wasn't like Lev was 100 people when I, I came into the business. There were still people that were at Lev before I was there. And I think it's very natural for people to say, well, this is, this is not the same business that I came into. And maybe it's a little bit different culture. And that was, that was a hard part. That's, that's, that's a difficult part about inheriting anyone's business is the fact that you're going to take it in a new direction and there will be just natural resistance to change. And that was, that was hands down one of the, the hardest parts about being the CEO in the first six months. And how did you handle that? So those people who were like, you know, I don't know about this Michael guy, you know, I've been here longer than him. How do you, how do you deal with that? I think the, the way that we, and there, there is, there's no perfect way. I think the way that I approached it was saying, Hey, this is the opportunity. Like this is, we're growing now at this crazy percentage. We are competing with and as and most as influential as the top consulting companies in the world. As an individual, it gives opens you up as many opportunities as you want, either here at Lev or elsewhere. And that was kind of the story that we took, and and that worked out for many people who had a great run and then ended up building on their career afterwards. But there's only so much selling. Like I, I never want to truly sell anyone to be at any business I'm in. I don't want to, like, I want people to want to be here. And so there's only so much selling that you'll get from me to be a part of a business. I think that actually works for our recruiting effort. I think about like, we, we want people to really want to be here. 
And I think that was just something I've kind of learned over the over my time is like, all right, I'm just going to accept like some people will not want to be here and they'll find another path and that's okay. And there are plenty of people that, that ended up having a great run because they stayed and, and held course. So cool. So I want to go back in time a little bit only because you mentioned this right at the beginning of our talk today. Uh, you had mentioned there isn't just one profile for a CEO. So can we talk a little bit about either what it takes to be CEO, attributes of a CEO, or different profiles that you think will work in a CEO role? I, I think that there's, I, I don't think that there's a limit to the number of profiles that can work as a CEO. Sure. I think it's more about, are you willing to take on everything inside of a business? And when I tell it, like, I mean, everything, like I, I wrote something last week where in the role of CEO, like you feel every, you feel every win, you feel every loss, every challenge, every opportunity, like you feel it from every single angle. And so I always tell people like, that's really what makes a CEO. Like, are you comfortable accepting responsibility for every single aspect of the business and so when i say like why do i think that there's a there's not a limit to the number of profiles if you are willing to take on that responsibility and worry about cash like cash is like well that's such a you i could probably have millions and millions and millions i would still worry about cash you should as a ceo always worry about cash um, and accept that but like the profile is less concerning to me is if, if you know where are your strengths and that you suck it up and you hire people around you to fill in the gaps where you're weak. So if I think about like myself, I'm the two things I do really well, I'm recruiting slash culture, kind of put that together. And the second thing, which is a surprise to me, it turns out I'm really good at opening up new channel partners, like how to, how to get in there how to show trust, how, you know, how to build credibility, how to win over a channel to show them how they can help you. Like I'm really strong there. I am less strong when it comes to on the spot selling with a customer. And that's where I'm like Bobby Tishy on my team and co-founder is phenomenal at that. <laughs> Bobby doesn't want to open up the channel. Like he wants to, he wants to do what he works, do really well. And he's a great consultant. He's phenomenal. It comes to marketing tech. So it's like, Bobby fills in that hole for me. Uh, Elisa, who just joined us um, on the Stitch team, is great on the people side. So from an HR recruiting, she's my great partner. We just hired a COO slash CFO that came in. So it's like, know where you're really strong at and go find those people around you. Now, I say that, and there's a lot of people that I run into that are founders, founder CEOs that can never move, can never get there. They just, they want to do it all. They want to close all the business. They want to work on all the customers and they will cap uh, how fast they can grow their business. So as long as you're, you're comfortable just accepting where you're weak and that is not a weakness of a CEO to say you're weak. That's, I think, a strength. And I think that's why you can, high, you can look at different profiles. So me, it's like I'm an introvert and I would never have thought, you know, 20 years ago that introverted CEO could lead, you know, successful, have a successful exit and hopefully many more in the future. But I think that's, as I've just kind of learned along the way is that finding those people to balance you are so important to being successful as a CEO. 
Absolutely. That reminds me of good to great, where I think it was a high percentage of the great companies had CEOs that were not charismatic, were not extroverted, but they're actually introverted and, you know, very attentive to detail, et cetera. So um, what, so for example, you said you, one of your strengths is um, opening up channel partnerships. What in your past <laughs> helped you become very good at that? Like where in a previous role did you build those skills to just be great at, at opening channel partnerships? I think the only thing I can think of is just it's my time being customer facing. Mm-hmm. So you're brand new to a customer, right? And you've got, you've got to do all that kind of preparation to kick off call. Um, and like in my time, I mean, even my, my early in my career, where I'm talking to people that have you know, 20, 30 years of experience in banking or in a credit union, like I'm, I'm, I'm never going to be there. Like, how, how am I going to, how am I going to show up and be relevant? And I became really good at that whole preparation, thinking through the questions they're they going to be asking, building confidence, like early, like, Hey, I'm not going to let you down. I'm here for you. So I think like a lot of that r- goes back to my roots and just working directly with customers many, many years ago which ultimately apply those same exact skills apply when I'm meeting someone for the first time, whether it's at Braze or wherever it may be. And they have trust that I know what I'm talking about and that I'm inherently interested in our mutual wins. So I don't think I've been asked that question. So that's a great question. But I think that's probably where it stems from. I, I think I was, was surprised as anyone on the, when I started working with Salesforce on the channel side. And it was like, oh, wow. Like, I'm actually fairly decent at this. I'm kind of confident. <laughs> and I loved it. I always tell people, I don't, I don't know why people are not, more people don't do this because I like this, this is true. Being a partner, like a services partner, I end up working more broadly and deeply than when I was actually in that company. So like, and Salesforce, like I'm working across every aspect of Salesforce. A Braze, like it's, I know, up to the CEO of Braze. But it's so cool being in a partner because you can go so broad and deep with the relationship that um, that's also pretty appealing to me. I love it. I love it. Okay. Um, Grayson, I think I want to save the superpower question till the end. What do you think? Okay. okay so hold yeah. on to that. Pretend you didn't hear any of that, Michael. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Done. <laughs> I have a question then about, so, um, Talk through the acquisition process a little bit. Um, so again, I don't know how much you can kind of talk through this, but one of the things that I did hear about like Lev's exit was that for a professional services company, like it was relatively high multiple uh, exit. And so I'm just interested, like what were some of the things that you guys were doing that were special or, or sort of like, how did you, uh, how did you kind of, earn higher than what a traditional, you know, company would have earned um, from like an acquisition perspective. And we, we ended up having about a high figure exit and uh, just to kind of give you a time frame of that happening. So I joined Lev in April of 2016. We had our exit in April of 2020. And clearly like a process starts before your exit. And normally it's at least a six month time frame. So this is like, when you think about that story, and I really didn't even, until afterwards, I kind of slowed down. I'm like, that story was really a three and a half year story that that happened. And we had that type of exit, which was, you know, that's not 
that is unusual. That is unusual for a professional services business to have that kind of growth in that short period of time. I think the the, the biggest part for us is you. There are a lot of factors. So, what's the space that you're playing in? So, like, what technology are you around? I think in our our case of, and I firmly believe this, when you're focused, when you have a very specific niche you've carved out for yourself as a services business is important. So we had that focus in a growing technology with Salesforce Marketing Cloud, where there also were not enough independents. Like there were not, it's not like there were 20 different levs that were out there. The, the one that looked most similar to us was a company called DEG, and they had been acquired by uh, Dentsu, a large agency holding company, maybe a year or maybe about a year before we were. So like there weren't like a ton of independent players. So you've got limited um, consultancies out there. We also were intentionally in marketing tech and we're still in marketing tech, although with a different focus. Marketing tech is, I think, really interesting because a lot of the revenue is ongoing. It's recurring. It's not projects. So if you think about a marketer, there's always another campaign. There's always. You don't just stop marketing. You are always, always marketing. So for a services business where you have a very specific skill set and it's highly in demand and you have more and more of your revenue that's considered recurring, I'm not saying it's a perfect SaaS model, but even SaaS contracts can be canceled with with notice. That's a reality, Uh, just like a services business. But when you see that kind of ongoing recurring revenue coming from a services business in a high demand area or not enough consultants, you kind of naturally build up more and more uh, demand. And that's what happened with Lev. And it was uh, a great success for a lot of those reasons. And uh, another thing that I think you guys did really well, the majority of your customers were like also pretty big companies. Is that correct? In time. I I wouldn't say that was the case immediately. When um, I'd say when we, we spent a lot of time in the Salesforce commercial space, um, and, okay. and now always quite a qualify the way that Salesforce does it and many other companies do it's based off of their segmenting based off of employee count so you could have a, a small employee count but have a huge revenue number which we did work with customers that fell into that but I think that's um, a very natural journey for our services business that's tech adjacent where you kind of get into maybe SMB and mid-market you have success and then you ultimately kind of get pulled into enterprise space so it wasn't necessarily like we were in the biggest brands day one. Um, when we exited, uh, we for sure were in some very notable brands that were enterprise level customers. But that um, you know that took probably a year to get more into enterprise. Okay, so you've had these successes. You've been executing year after year, company after company. Um, I want to get to Stitch because Stitch is your baby. So can you go <laughs> ahead and just tell the world a quick what is Stitch? Who are you? Yeah, we're so we're a, kind of a similar story. We're a marketing tech consultancy. Uh, our we think it's really important for us to have a focus. Like, what's what specific partner tech partner do we think we want to be connected to? And ultimately, we're focused on Braze. Braze been has been around since 2012. They went public almost a couple of years ago, and headquartered uh, in New York. We actually had some mutual customers together in the past in my prior life. So we're really focused on helping marketers get the most out of Braze. I think what's a little bit different than our story about Lev is that we're more open, more agnostic 
when it comes to the data providers that are powering customer information that's happening inside of Brace. So we do work with segments. Snowflake will build up that expertise across likely Databricks and others over time. But our center is all about how do we go and help marketers get the most out of Brace. And that changed a little bit, right? If I remember the very first like V1, uh, maybe not V1, but the V1 that I knew of Stitch was like fully focused on segment. Was that correct? It, it, it was. Like I always like, you know, there's not, you know, I think we all know kind of we're building up a business. There is no, it's, there's no direct line. And so like the original thinking behind Stitch was going to be more, a little bit more Twilio, Twilio focus. So I say segment is a component of that. But it was a broader play with where we thought Twilio was going to go with marketing. Um, and ultimately, it, we just didn't see that as being a viable path for us. Like we're looking for long tail marketing engagements with well-known enterprise level brands that are using the platform. And that kind of had us look to say, well, right, well, we don't think that's, I think segment is definitely continues to be a part of our story, but cannot be the center of our story. So we took a whole uh, five hours to determine that <laughs> Braze was where we should be focused. And we had a, we built a pretty good thesis as to why, and then we just started executing. Is and that one of your um, inflection points? <laughs> took just almost yeah. a second. <laughs> yeah. It, it was at a, a coffee shop in Amelia Island in mid January when Bobby and I were kind of catching up in the morning and I kind of floated this idea. I'm like, Hey, you remember when we were doing all that great work with Braze when we were at Lev and we were at, they were at ABC customer. Like that's what we should go do. And then we made a few phone calls and, and said like, this is, this makes the most sense for our business financially and was really interesting to our, our team, our consultants. And so, yeah, it's one of those times where you just, you just have to move really quickly and, you know, I, like I, it kind of worked out. Like I, I'm not so certain that we would have had as fast of, of a growth story with Braze had that been our starting point on day one. I think we were still figuring out Stitch, like who the people were, and there were a lot of fundamental things, that foundational things that had to be done. That all that was out of the way by the time we were focused on Braze. So cool. And so, so, so what else about Braze? Um, versus like other marketing softwares, like why, uh, how does it compare to Salesforce Marketing Cloud? How does it compare to HubSpot, for example? Like what uh, about Braze do you really like that kind of like made it such an easy decision? So on the on the financial side, if you look at it, they publicly trade a company, but their investment in internal services has been going down. And their last quarterly statement, they were less than 5% of the revenue was internal services. And even that internal services, I've shared this with them as well, and I publicly talk about this, I think it's been invested in the wrong areas. So they've been, they've been investing in kind of fairly generic, that's not fair, um, onboarding. That's not hands-on. It's not providing, like it's not specific to that given customer. So they've, I feel like they've underinvested and made the wrong investments. So that's been happening. Uh, the second thing, they've got a great growth trajectory over the past couple of years. The third thing is they've moved up into the enterprise space. So they were originally selling to like app developers. They were doing mobile. And then they became over time a full suite, kind of all across multiple channels. I hate selling omni-channel. 
hate that. I'm going to say multiple channels. And <laughs> then they, so they, so all these have, they're moving enterprise. They've got this full product. They've underinvested in services and they've not built a partner ecosystem. It's like, this is perfect. Like, this is amazing. This is exactly where we want to be. This you is where exactly we can help. For me. I know. It's like, <laughs> we're going to help you co-sell. We're going to grow your customer. We're going to reduce churn. It's not going to cost you a penny. Like, this is a great, you know, this is the beauty of a services, of a services business. And, you know, for those reasons, you know, those are the big reasons. I, as like compared to a Salesforce or Adobe, they have not, like similar to HubSpot, like they have not, they've not built their product through acquisitions. It's like, it's brace. Mm-hmm. Like when you, someone says, draw me a, how Salesforce marketing cloud works, like show, show me all the products. <laughs> it's like, you've got to create these crazy diagrams. Like that's Salesforce marketing cloud. Cause it's not like one product and yeah. it's, it's more modern, meaning it's been more mobile focused, but they've built out all their channels. They understand like where marketers want to be. They want to be simple. So it, it's a solution that just works. Um, they've got the business fundamentals. And the third thing I always talk about is that I think that their leadership team is exceptional. Like I, I've um, been fortunate to get to, get to know some of them in one-on-one. And I would say Bill Magnuson, their CEO, was probably one of the top, top five <clears throat> smartest people I've ever met. And so I'm like, these are humble people that are incredibly intelligent, that are also self-aware that they don't have all the answers and want to go learn. And you take all that together and then you add it, the Stitch experience, that's, that's pretty powerful. So something like to that kind of degree that I've noticed about, you know, how you mentioned their software company, they've only got 5% of their revenue as services. Um, different companies are sort of taking different approaches here in terms of do they want to house their services department internally or do they want to invest in like a partner ecosystem? Um, I think Salesforce, for example, they actually acquired some partner companies themselves, right, to kind of bring that back internal and sort of add uh, to their revenue. But what are your thoughts on, you know, should you take the the Salesforce model where you're sort of building out services internally while still having partners? Or should you take like the Braze or the HubSpot model where it's like you're actively trying to decrease your internal services in an increase, you know, the partners that are to go in and servicing? Like, what are the considerations there? So, you know, Salesforce even got into, I mean, they acquired a services business many years ago, a company called Model Metrics out of Chicago that became kind of the foundation for their sales and service business, internal services business. So the Salesforce story is actually being fairly consistent, which hey, we're partner first. And, but we also think services are important for our most strategic customers. And so, yes, they've continued to acquire companies because they've continued to grow the business. They acquire traction on demand might've been the most recent one that they, that they acquire, which is a pretty sizable consultancy. And, so I, I actually think Salesforce is taking the the right approach. And, and if I'm someone's asking me from Braze, I'm thinking they should be doing the same thing. Like you should be investing in internal services for your most strategic customers because there will always be a subset of your customers who want to work directly with you. And you have to have some kind of answer. And I also think that group is, is beneficial to helping. Like how do you go build other consultancies? Like they can they can be inputs into that. So I, I, I think it's a both. That's where I think Braze made the mistake of investing in onboarding, um, not the most beneficial to many customers, marketers who are just like, tell me, like, don't just tell me about the product, like help me be a better marketer, understand this tool, what strategy. 
So I think that's what they should be doing. They should be doing growing both the, the ecosystem and investing in a smaller subset of internal services that, that are focused, again, on more strategic customers. And so you mentioned the Braze's partner ecosystem is still kind of new. I think I saw a LinkedIn post from you uh, the other day welcoming competitors into the ecosystem. And uh, I heard from uh, Egan that you think it's great to have competitors. And that seems really counterintuitive. So tell me why you like having competitors so much and kind of what do you mean uh, when you're when you're saying that? So the, the first is like the more partners that are merging into the Braze space, the better for Braze. Right. The better for Braze, the better for all consultancies and partners that are out there. So that, that to me is like a fundamental belief I, I have. And because it's so early, it more validation is just better. So that's number one. And then the second thing for, for me personally, I just I just love winning. I really do. I, I value <laughs> it. Like it's like it brings me joy to win. And I know that's not everyone likes to say that. And everyone I love likes to it. Say, Why not? It's honest. <laughs> I know. I, and I, I saw someone that said, well, I, and I just want to, I want to build myself and I don't really want there to be a defined loser. Like, well, guess what? Like there's always, there is, that's how it works. There's a winner and a loser. And, and I think that that drives me and that drives me personally to be just better every day. And so when there's competition, like you play up to the competition. Mm-hmm. And if it's if it's not there, then I'm not going to necessarily like we can be good, but I don't want to be good. Like I want to be exceptional. And I think that's that competition drives a little bit more force of change into a business when you're when you've got that you've got a comp you've got that competition and you can say, Hey, we're gonna go be A, B, and C. And then the other thing too, like I love to love, I love being the underdog. So, you know, everyone wants to talk about the global system integrators, GSIs and and I'm like, we will beat them every day, <laughs> every day. Bring it on. So that's why, those are all the reasons why I like competition. I'm glad I asked that. Yeah, I feel like that's the most fired up I've seen. Like, so good. It's like, yes. Let's... I love it. I do love competition. <laughs> uh, one of the other things that kind of was made aware to me, and you actually mentioned it yourself, um, was that recruiting was like one of your favorite things to do and kind of one of your superpowers. Uh, as CEO. Um, but you also mentioned something that seemed a little counterintuitive in terms of, uh, I don't try to sell people too hard on like either staying at Lev when you became the CEO or, you know, joining Stitch now. So I guess talk to to us a little bit like, well, if you're not going out there and kind of like, you know, hitting them up every week on LinkedIn um, saying, hey, do you want to join the company now? Uh, like, what are you doing from a recruiting perspective? And why do you think, you know, it's so effective? Um, at Lev and then now at Stitch. So I, like the re- recruiting starts with your culture and the people that are in your business right now who are out advocating for you. So the first thing when I think about recruiting is d- does the current team, so like the team at Stitch, like are, are they are they all in? Like do they believe in what we're doing and do they love supporting each other? Like do you create that kind of culture? And when that happens and they go talk to 20 other people and then those people talk to another 10 to 15 people like that's the first place that you start at when it comes to building a culture that's focused on recruiting is that kind of word of mouth spreading from our entire business so it cannot just be from me specifically and then i think that the the other thing that that we focus on i definitely focus on just being like who i am i don't i don't think there's a lot of people that are necessarily ceos that are 
as open about all the things that I run into, whether it's problems or the fact that I've lived with multiple sclerosis for many, many years of my life. And I'm very open about that. I think that attracts people to, to it. And I, I think the last thing that's, that's interesting is that when I talk to people, like if I'm lining up, they're lining up the last interview. I interview, I meet with every single person that comes into Stitch and did that for many years at Lev, stopped doing it, regretted it. And I was like, I will never, never stop that again. That exercise is important. And I'm never selling because the way I'm talking about it, it's just like, why would you not want to be here? Like, these are the opportunities that are happening. This is the growth story. You've heard me talk like how passionate I'm about the opportunity with Braze and why to me, it's just like, it's like a no brainer. And I, that's how I talk about it because that's how I believe. Like, why would you not want to be in this business? And so you kind of start with that culture and just saying like, why not? Then it just kind of changes the dynamics for someone to go sell you and we need to be at this comp. And a lot of cases we're like, hey, this is what the, this is what the salary is. Like, this is it. Like bonus right now, admittedly, it's, it's subjective because we're still early stage. Like, how's the business going to go do? And a lot of people, that would be a pretty tough sell. And I think here it's just a matter of just like outlining, here's what the opportunity is. Either you're in or you're not. And way more often than not, people are in. I love it. Question about um, running an early stage company and challenges um, that you face. Obviously, you guys have clear direction. You guys are going for it, et cetera. But what, if you're willing to share, what challenge have you faced at Stitch thus far? And is it relatable to potentially other founders or other early stage companies? And how have you gone about tackling it? So services businesses are are difficult to get moving because you you have to like you've got to invest in people like you're not building a product that you then go sell so timing it right on when you see opportunities coming in like you're gonna like these customers are coming in and timing that with hiring people is that 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 timing the importance of that timing is amplified times a hundred like within the first couple of years when you are several hundred people. There's lots of changes that like customers roll off and people can be staffed on new things. There's it's all these movement that makes it a little bit easier. But in an early stage services business, that is very difficult because you can't afford to hold a bench to you know for like six weeks, right? Like you're, there's no revenue generated from that. I love the team, but like there there are I mean, there's revenue and there's there's revenue and costs. It's pretty it's pretty simple, and so I think that's been. Uh, been difficult for us and i mean not a surprise that'd be difficult to go do to get the timing right um it means you require a lot of just-in-time hiring until you can build up enough cash to go invest in a, in a bigger bench to make it a little bit easier yeah. um so i think that's been a real challenge i think the other part that's been challenging is like it, t- it takes time to find your fit we talked about it with twilio and segment and like we didn't start with braves right away and so that means you're burning cash, like you're burning cash until you until you find the right path. And it is, you know, as a CEO, it's my responsibility to make sure that we do not run out of cash. Like that's like mission number one, like, like mission number two, grow the business, don't run out of cash. That's kind of like, that's kind of how you, how you look at it. And that's, um, you know, that's, that's hard for any, just any business to get that right is, is, is always very challenging. And that's why, you know, the success rate is not, not as always high as what people think it is when you start a business because to get those things right and have enough runway it's tough one of the things you mentioned and i'm interested 
Uh, you talked about the fact that you weren't coming into necessarily like a clean slate at Lev just because, you know, there are already people, there are already processes, businesses involved. But uh, with Stitch, you've kind of got to build everything from the ground up. Uh, I'm interested, like, so what have been the differences so far in sort of like your responsibilities as CEO at Lev and kind of just how the company was running there versus your responsibilities as a CEO of a, a startup that is still, you know, finding product market fit, all of this stuff. Um, yeah, just talk through uh, those differences. I almost kind of like want to knock on wood when I say this, but it's, it's easier. <laughs> it's easier. Like, it's just, okay. yeah, like I'm, it's all the decisions are, are being made now. Like I'm responsible for those, many of those decisions. Maybe my team is, but like, like, anything that's going wrong, it's, it's like, it's on, it's on me. It's not like I inherited something that I didn't like. It's like all on me, but it's been surprising. Like that, that's just, it's, it's just felt, I don't know, but admittedly some of it's probably because I've, I'm not a first time CEO. Like I've done it before and I have probably more confidence. We had a great exit. Like we've got a good reputation as an entire team. I think those do those, no doubt. I don't, I'm not naive enough to think that those don't count. But it's just like when it's when it's your baby, you're building it. It's just I don't know. It just it just it feels a lot more natural for me because the actual day to day things I do from execution are not are not really all that different than what I was doing at Lev. So I mean I'm re- doing a lot of things that worked well at Lev. Like clearly, Lev was a success in a lot of ways. It was a success. So like, why would I ignore those things? Now we've done th- some of the things that did not work so well. We may able to change those at Stitch, but there are a lot of things that work well. So the execution, my style, our approach and strategy, uh, marketing, I mean, all that is, is very, very similar. But I think it's just this, you know, you're, you're, not, you're not convincing people that, that who are already in a certain business that, that this new business is this way and you need to get on board. That's just not there for, for anymore. And that just makes it easier too, because the people that you're bringing into the business are, you know, they're already, they're already bought in and that goes a long way to reducing any kind of friction. So again, I'm, I'm probably going to totally jinx myself in six months. I'm going to be like, I should have <laughs> never said that you idiots. Why did you publicly say that? But you right now, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, right now it's going, it's going exceptionally well. And so one of the things was kind of like scaling up a company and then especially, you know, starting where everything is sort of like your decision. How do you start to like let go of some of that ability to make every decision uh, as a CEO um, and, and kind of be like, you know, this person is super capable. I hired them to do X, Y, Z. I need to like maybe just step back, even if I would do it a different way. Like, how do you make that call in terms of, you know, I need to fight this battle. I think it should be a different way versus I hired them for a reason. Let them do what they want to do. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's probably what a draw you asked a lot of people that were at Stitch is that they are empowered to make their own decisions, and it's you know it's it is very very rare that I'll come in over the top on anyone and say I don't agree with that. Like it's got to be something that's just got to stand out for me. Is like maybe that's just like a that business. This doesn't make business financial sense for us to do, but for the most part, the people need to go make their own mistakes and figure it out for themselves. So everyone is empowered to go do that. And I also go through, I still do this, uh, I go through a process every month where I write down everything I do. Like, hey, Michael, what are you doing every single week? And I write it down. Now it gets easier when you already have it written down. 
but I go through it and say, okay, I always look at where I'm, what's, what am I good at and what am I passionate about? Find that overlap. Where are things I'm just not that great? And is there someone in the business today that can take that? Now, early stage, not a lot of people can go take some things I'm not good at and I just have to keep them. But it's why I do it every single month. So we just hired someone who's a CEO, our COO, Brian Motmany, who has a CFO background, strong operations person. Now when I go through the exercise, I'm like, here's 30 damn things I don't want to do that Brian is <laughs> way better, way, way better at me and go do that. But that's something like I do, I do have to do every month. I have to do that kind of for my own, my, my own sanity too. Like I've got, you know, I've got a family. We want to, I, I don't want to work 80 hours a week. I don't think that's success. And so that means I have to go through that exercise all the time to push things to other people to help me. Well, that's certainly a strength of yours as a CEO. I know I mentioned the superpower question, but I think I've taken away multiple. So we'll leave that as it is. Last question for me, where is Stitch going? You're excited about Stitch. You're building a great team. Why are you excited? Where Where are you going in Stitch? Yeah, I, I don't know. I've never like, I've never look out that far ahead. Knock on wood. Knock on wood. Come <laughs> so on, just dream I, a little, I, Michael. Dream I, a little. <laughs> I, like, for me, like, success is, as a services business, is, is, is fairly clear. Like, you, you want to bring in more and more, more and more people mean more and more revenue as a services business. The more and more people that we bring into the business, the more and more different opportunities that those people will have. And then, therefore, we'll likely be able to do different types of services than we do now. Not necessarily doing things competitive to Braze, but are enhancing Braze. Whether it's be like, hey, we're going to go build out an analytics group that's going to help Braze marketers better understanding what campaigns work to get work. Like, to me, that's the fun part of seeing a business grow and seeing our, our different leaders emerge over time. And then when we're successful like that, we'll have lots of opportunities. Like. Do we want to go acquire other companies? That's not something I've ever done before. Do we go acquire companies versus being an acquired company? You know, what other ways can we be doing investment? Like I'm, I'm definitely dreaming bigger than I did at Lev. Like how can we grow internationally quickly? Like clearly there's a lot of opportunity there. 43% of Braze's revenue is in international markets, which is fairly high considering you know, this their tenure. And I'm like, why can't we go do that? So like it's really about thinking about those kinds of things is where our heads are right now. And that likely gets us well into 2026, just focused on those things. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on. I wanted to give you the opportunity to just uh, let people know how to stay connected with you. Is there anything that you wanted to, to plug? Uh, website, social media, book coming out anytime no, soon? No, no uh, book, but I'm a strong, I'm a strong <laughs> believer in uh, the power of founder brand. So check me out on LinkedIn. Uh, follow me, see what I have to say. And if you're interested, we can connect in person. I love it. Well, we'll put the links to everything in, in the uh, show notes so you can find the LinkedIn and anything else there. Michael, thank you again for coming on. This was great. I uh, really love to dive deeper into some of this. With thank you. you both. Thanks, Michael.